and welcome to Super Excited with Stefan Roost. I'm Mike, the facilitator of this podcast. In this episode, Stefan talks to Sherid Young. Sherid Young is an ex-Googler and the co-founder of BlueJay Finance, making her a financial tech payments veteran who has spent most of her working life on inclusion. She believes that cryptocurrency emerged as a borderless, efficient, programmable way to meet her longtime professional goals. In this episode, Stefan and Sherry discuss how financial tech leapfrogs in the East, currencies, CBDCs, stable coins and regulations, and the importance of decentralization and adoption. Enjoy this episode. Hey everybody, um, I'm super excited to be here today with Sherry. Sherry Jung is the founder of Blue Jay. Um, finance, which is a capital-efficient, multi-currency, stable coin. Um, she's got a really interesting background, but rather than me talk about it, why don't I let her quickly introduce herself? And and super happy to have you here, Sherry, and thanks for jumping on. Um, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Stefan. Um, so, hi, everyone. I'm Sherry. I'm the CEO and co-founder of BlueJay Finance, um, a stablecoin protocol that's focused on building non-USD currencies, especially for the ASEAN region. Um, a little bit of my background. Um, so, actually, the first time I ever touched crypto was not, uh, I guess, uh, similar to most people's use cases, which is trading, but I actually used crypto to buy things cross-border because I found it actually easier and cheaper than using credit cards for certain types of payments back in 2015, actually. Um, and then, uh, you know, fast forward a couple of years later, um, you know, I, you know, then actually made the move into crypto as a job. But, you know, in between, I was actually spending more of my time um, in the big tech world. So I was working at um, Google for a couple of years. Um, I started out in the States, but then uh, later on moved over to Singapore in 2018 um, to work on uh Google Pay and digital payments um, for, for emerging markets, especially India. And so it was actually part of the early team that um, built the payments app um, and you know, started out as a new product, zero users to over 100 million in just about three years. Um, and so I think that really got me excited about how uh, technology really can advance financial inclusion, even for all like for all walks of life, right? We were seeing people like even street vendors in Bangalore accepting payments if they have uh, a mobile phone, right? Which is, um, you know, something that many, many people have um, in, in Asia. And but the thing is, I think being in fintech also was a point of frustration for me because I also found that you were building a lot of the application layer uh, that interface with the user, but the underlying infrastructure was pretty much the same thing, right? Um, interoperability of apps between different countries for payments, very hard to do. Yeah. Doing standing instructions, recurring payments was very tough to do as well because you had to go through this entire process of basically lobbying the you know centralized authority that controlled the bank to bank rails to prioritize that on the, the roadmap. And so then later on, you know, my trip back into crypto uh, now as a you know founder was really just last year and um you know decided to work on stable coins as that fundamental um layer to this you know new financial stack that's you know more more cross border borderless um more efficient uh, and much more programmable um so that's a little bit of my my story 
Awesome. No, it's like, it's always good to sort of meet people that have an experience in an industry and bringing that learning and, and that interface, that actions, the challenges, the opportunities, and seeing the opportunities and bringing that onto a Web3 decentralized framework, right? And why is that? Um, so really excited to, to go into this more and, and learn more about your journey and um, what you're working on. Uh, but also some of the challenges, maybe before we go into it, right? I think one of the things is payments, right? I mean, payments really mm-hmm. hasn't gone through much innovation because we're all so heavily dependent on the credit card framework in the Western world, which hasn't really gone through innovation since the 1950s, really. Right. Uh, okay, we've got Stripe, which has created good code. We've got PayPal that allowed us to pay, but all on the same rails, right? And so now we yeah, ultimately yeah. have a new rail, right? And so in emerging exactly. markets, though, you've experienced a very different framework, right? Where money is moving in a very different framework where people don't have credit cards. How's that experience been? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think there's pluses and minuses, right? I think one is that because there wasn't this credit card, um, and let me just give you some numbers as reference, right? So um, last I had worked on Google Pay about a year ago, um, digital payments penetration was about 300 million or so, which is you know a third of a billion. Um, total number of people holding credit cards was no more than 50 million, right? And so so it's actually a fraction of like digital payments. So so what that allows a lot of these technologies to do is essentially leapfrog in places like Asia, right? You saw that in China with WeChat Alipay, you saw that in India with Google Pay, Phone Pay. And so I actually believe that there is this um, you know, uh, faster adoption that can happen in Asia with crypto when it comes to some of these real world utilities, because quite frankly, people just don't have access to those types of services, right. access to global capital markets through traditional finance. Right. Yeah. And so I think that's the, that's the plus. Now the, 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 the I would say that the challenge is that, um, you know, credit for a lot of, you know, businesses and people is, is still, I would say, a relatively new concept, right? Um, there's some cultural nuances around, uh, taking in money that you don't have and then being able to pay it back. I think as an American, I mean, we are so totally fine with taking on, you know, credit cards and we're used to it. Right. But that kind of behavior, I'd say, um, especially at the consumer level is something that is, is still new. Right. So, um, there's definitely cultural nuances that absolutely anybody crypto FinTech will have to think about when building products for the region. Yeah. And I think that's, that's, you know, a real big opportunity where we've also seen crypto evolve, right? It's really moved in the framework of of DeFi, right? Where we've created liquidity pools, we've created uh, the ability to exchange between crypto assets and stable coins. And and that's been an important part of the journey um, we're going down. Whereas I think there's a huge opportunity in emerging markets to actually build out payment mechanisms, right? Exchange between real-world currency, the on-ramp and the off-ramp. And I think that's sort of something that's really interesting what you're doing, right? I think there are 90, I think, you know, in crypto land, the currency of, you know, the currency of world, the crypto reserve currency is USDT, right? I mean, by far, it has $65 billion trading volume every day, Mm -hmm. but very little of that is used for payments and very little of that is used on a peer-to-peer basis, right? So how can we do more of that to get more velocity and get more interaction? I think that's where you're trying to take 
Blue Jay in what you're doing. Maybe share a bit more what's what's yeah. a stablecoin for you and 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 how are you building a business around stablecoin that's going to be different to, to Tether or work with Tether? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think to answer the question around payments, right, we have to think about the three roles of money itself, yep. right? Um, it's, it's a store of value, it's a medium of exchange, and it's a unit of account. Now, yep. I think crypto thus far, especially with USD stablecoins, has really fit this store of value use case, especially for countries outside the US that may have inflationary currencies, right? And so people in Argentina who have the peso, right, are actually looking at holding DAI, um, getting into crypto with you know, USC stable coins as that base pair in order to be able to preserve wealth. Um, yeah. And so so I think that the vast majority of the use cases, um, the vast majority of the stable assets have been really around this first use case, right? But there's so much more that you can bring in, like just to give you like a little bit like a sense of numbers, but just cross-border payments itself is supposed to be a $1.3 trillion market in just about three years, just cross-border. I'm not even talking about domestic, any yeah. of that, right? Um, and that is an industry that is like, it's, it's, it's something that I think can be disrupted, but there, there isn't really a good um, currency to, to do something like that right now. And that's where um, I think um, you need to look at the second to the, the, the last two cases of uh, use cases of money, which is medium exchange and unit of account, which essentially yeah. is how do people actually think about the currency they transact in and how do they actually calculate it as a business or as a user? And Ultimately, if you live outside of the U.S., you think in terms of your local currency. You're denominating your books as a business in that local currency. Um, you pay your rent in that local currency, not U.S. dollar. And so um, I think this bringing in that real world wealth, that local wealth needs local and real world currencies to match that. Now, yeah. that's why we're starting out with that first step of the currency, but that's not the last step, right? Um, you need to have an ecosystem of people using this. And so um, what gets me really excited is that there are a lot of new protocols that have come up in just the last couple of months that are building around some of these um, payment um, and money market use cases. So you may have heard of, um, you know, within at least money lending markets, right? Guys like Goldfinch, um, Centrifuge, um, they're doing a lot of this like uh, financial access enablement in emerging markets uh, yeah. or markets outside the US um, using DeFi loans. Yeah. Um, and then within payments, uh, there's actually quite a few that are now doing um, subscription payments, like recurring payments um, using uh, using crypto essentially. And so these are the folks that we want to enable in our ecosystem using our stable coins to make it so people can pay more cheaply, pay more borderlessly and pay more programmably. Yeah, I think that's, that's, and also, I mean, on a local level, a lot of, the individuals and people living in local markets are not necessarily used to all these other currencies, right? They're very familiar with their own currency as a medium of exchange for goods and services in their specific yes. country. So that's exactly. a super critical element, right? Yes, absolutely, right? Like, just think about, like, um, what, how you're denominating your wealth, right? Yeah. Um, I think when you're talking to uh, the, you know, small sliver of extremely crypto-native people in markets around the world, like, it's actually probably true that they think in terms of USD, right? Because yeah. maybe a big part of their um, wealth is in crypto. They've been thinking in US dollar, and, and they're 
like not maybe representative of maybe the average person, right? But if you look across, right, um, all, all kind of stratas in, in, in these markets, most people don't use U.S. dollars. Um, they don't have access to use U.S. dollars. They don't think about goods and services they purchase, their rent, their 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 water bottle, you know, their their children's education fees. They don't think in terms of U.S. dollar. None of them do. I mean, um, actually, even if you you know go on some of the guild discords, right? I, I've been on some of the ones for gaming guilds and just look at like how people talk about SLP all of them talk about how much it's worth in IDR or PHP because that's just how you think and that's yeah. not going to change. Yeah. Yeah, because ultimately we still have a I mean, do you think at some point that will change though? Do you think at some mm. point there will become a different mindset that ultimately I will be able to buy my, you know, my my meal, my pay my electricity you know, from a solar independent solar panel, you know, energy generation solution, and I will be able to pay that individual or that entrepreneur in, you know, SLPs, for example, versus in, mm. in pesos or, or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think that really depends on how robust of a real economy that currency yeah. actually has, right? Yeah. Um, so, like, Here's something that I, I'll just take from my, you know, my former payments world is that um, ubiquity and places you pay with a certain form of payment or currency is incredibly important. And so there's this critical mass, right, where like if you're only able to use SLP in this like enclosed in-game environment, then it's yeah. very hard for you to use it elsewhere. Right. The reason why we think about our local currency or currency as a unit of account is we use it for everything, right? Yeah. And so that becomes a habitual way um, to actually think about your purchases. And so can there be a case where some other currency comes up that, you know, occupies what was used to be, you know, the, the local currency? I think it depends on how robust that um, ecosystem means to that user. So if let's say like, you know, extreme example but like if you're somebody who is a huge gaming fanatic and you spend you know the 40 percent of your waking hours uh playing games and you spend 40 percent of your wealth buying those things related to the game and there's a currency tied to that then i see a much bigger case but to me that seems so niche and edge that like the mm -hmm. average person you know, we'll still want something that's a lot more generalizable across a diverse set of merchants or places to pay. So I'll never say never, but I think the requirement for the ecosystem that people can actually pay with that currency, um, that stable coin or, you know, et cetera, is, is incredibly important. Yeah. So that would then also then, you know, sort of speak to a certain extent around digital local currencies, right? I mean, how do you view we always get the question, you know, so what's CBDC? What's your, how do you think this stacks up against CBDC, right? I mean, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, how do you view, I mean, if I, if I have a large population that's already thinking in pesos, for me as a, as a, as a provider to create a digital, a digital equivalent of that national currency should be easier and, and allow for continuous exchange um, in that market. So the, the value, this, you have all those three assets associated with that in a digital currency. Do you think people will adopt the CBDCs more? Um, in, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, so, I mean, my, my answer is there's going to be um, a role for different types of stable coins in the future. Um, yeah. I think in certain markets, there will be CBDCs, there will be private stable coins, there'll be decentralized stable coins. There's going to be a range of them, right? Yeah. Um, of course, if you're talking about certain political regimes where, you know, the government can go and just say, like, anything that is not the CBDC is not allowed, right? Then, I mean, that can happen, but there's yep. probably only certain countries where that can happen without political backlash, I would yeah, say, but yeah, not yeah, getting yeah. into the politics of it. I would say that um, it, there's going to be segmented roles. So I'll tell you why I don't think CBDCs are going to be like the, the one currency to rule them all. Right. Uh, number one is that there is going to be tech challenges. Um, with having one, like, I guess, monolithic CBDC doing retail and wholesale level, uh, you know, transactions. Um, and, and actually what's really interesting is my, my co-founder and CTO uh, actually used to work uh, in the Singapore government in a tech arm uh, on blockchain initiatives. So he's actually fully aware of like what it actually takes to build that out. And um, his perspective is that even for an advanced economy like Singapore, um, they're not really considering a CBDC at the retail level at all in the near term. And that's something that the Monetary Association of Singapore has already publicly talked about. Uh, so I think from a tech perspective, it's actually pretty challenging to operate at multiple layers of that of that infrastructure. Um, I think the second one is really around, um, you know, bettering um, the uh, ultimate user experience by having private players still compete against each other. Yeah, so um, totally. the um, I remember back in the day um, when I was working on GP in India, we were really worried about the launch of this this app called Beam. So it was actually a, a bank to bank payments app that the government was launching and backing. And we're like, okay, like, are we in trouble? Is this going to be an issue? Right. Um, nobody uses it, that app from the government. And, and I'm not, this is not a knock on it at all, but, being yeah. in a private sector environment, we were we had a lot of you know talent to be able to kind of innovate and create the best experience. And so, again, I think that having multiple players kind of cater to their specific categories will ultimately be better. I think overall, because again, having one player trying to cater to all different needs, all different st uh, stacks of the financial stack, uh, sorry, all different layers of the financial stack, all different users, is going to be very, very challenging. Um, and then the third really is around um, the, I would say the, the, political reception of having um, the government be able to track every type of spend right that you have because ultimately they can if, if everything that you're um, everything that you're purchasing lending borrowing doing in financial transactions is ultimately tracked um, so I, I think CBdc's um, will definitely play a role in government expenditure government payments like I, I certainly wish there was an easier way to pay and track my taxes. Um, and, and to be honest, cross-border would be great too because I yep. am the president of Singapore, but a citizen of the US um, yep. can use that for, uh, yeah, I think anything related to governments. Um, banks can also probably leverage, really, really big banks can leverage CBDCs for like large payment volumes across border. But I don't think that they're gonna be the, the one stable coin to rule them all. Yeah, no. And, 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 you know, just to your point, right, around remittances, that's why I got into crypto. I mean, I got in because I was amazed at the time. It was such an innovation that I could transfer on a peer to peer basis to somebody on the other end of the world instantaneously with zero fees. 
from yeah. my desk, right? I didn't need to go to a branch in those days, right? And then sign a check and have that deposited, yeah. have that then accredited, pay $700 for moving that money on the, around the other end of the world in some bank account. For, and, and for me at the time, $700 was, wow, man, I can't, so much, just, you know, whatever the price was, it was just really a new innovation. And I think that drive for innovation, I don't think you'll see that from monopolistic providers of money, right? Uh, and mm-hmm. them working in cahoots with an existing, established, traditional institutions that are focused around having a regulatory moat, right? Their whole line of defense and reason of purpose is because they have this regulatory moat around them. So it's not innovation. It's not better use of money. It's not better capital efficiency, better payment mechanisms, more freedom. Um, But it's, oh, we've got 15 forms you need to fill out in order to access this money. Oh, to pay for that, you need to submit these 27 forms because it's crossing seven jurisdictions or whatever it is, right? And so I think that there is a lot of room for innovation. However, we still have a lot of work to do around educating and building trust in an alternative provider, right? And Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's still um, something that we as a community need to focus on and uh, always a bit of a challenge, particularly the centralized versions that are going through a lot of different FUD, the decentralized versions, and obviously, you know, some of the Terra Luna UST blow up has not been very helpful to us. And how do you view in your markets and, and the work that you've been doing? Um, how have people reacted to the whole UST, um, yeah. you know, sort of contagion that actually took place? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, you know definitely something. I think that set the industry back. Um, yeah. I, I would say, like, this is what I've seen happen. Right, um, the people who are very committed, dedicated to crypto, like their stance hasn't changed. In fact, they're just like, you know what, we want to just do a better job so that we prove to the rest of the world that like there are the good guys that try to do things right. And we're going to try to lead that kind of charge. Um, But then there's like the people who are on the cusp or like, you know, maybe at the crypto curious level that essentially have kind of left, right? Because, um, you know, that has caused a lot of like just anxiety and distrust and of course it doesn't help that it's been reflected in the prices as well um, of different assets so um you know how how do we view this right um i don't think this is going to be an educational effort that's going to happen overnight um but i'll tell you what messages we should be conveying and then the different levels at which they should be conveyed from a more personal level to probably more institutional level when you're talking to um you know companies to to when you're talking to friends right um i think number one is that no matter who you are in the industry responsibility is important and one thing that i think drives me crazy sometimes is people sometimes think if you're regulated, you're responsible. If you're not regulated, you're irresponsible. Like it is a false, it's totally not true. In fact, some of the most, it's the opposite. It's sometimes right. And so, so just because there is no regulatory framework for what you're working on today, doesn't mean you don't have a chance to step up and demonstrate responsibility. Now, what does that mean? I think number one is from a fundamental level, like having a sound balance sheet. Like I can't emphasize this enough, but even in DeFi, even though we have all these different new permutations of how we can use money, you still have to look at your assets, your liabilities and equity, right? And think about 
do you actually have a solvent system? Are you able to kind of meet some of the liquidity demands that may have, may come down the road? And if you actually look at those, that can probably explain 90% of the things that go wrong, right? So how do you yeah. demonstrate responsibility fiscally when you look at you know how you can break down the protocol from an accounting perspective? I think the second thing around responsibility is making sure that you are equipping the decision maker with all the information possible um, with the risks that they may have to think about before participating in your protocol. And so um, that I think is uh, something that I, I would say C5 definitely needs to work on to say like, this is not bank savings. Like you cannot treat this like putting your money with JP Morgan, right? Um, they have a whole bunch of different depository insurance policies, reserve requirements, things like that, that make it possible to say these uh, this is risk-free right but in the world of DeFi, as we saw with or i guess DeFi, CFI, right yeah. promising these yields and calling it bank savings was was misleading right and so yeah. communicating what that actually means and you know how making sure the user understands that that the even the counterparty risk that's involved in, in some of that so i think responsibility as a theme is super important, no matter who you are in the space. Um, uh, and then I'd say that the next R maybe of the themes that should be conveyed is actually real utility, right? And that can span a bunch of different meanings, right? I think real utility could be some of the really interesting uh, innovations on the primitive level that's happening, let's say in structured products or derivatives in DeFi, which I think is pretty interesting stuff. Um, and and by the way, like, you know, some of these, um, uh, protocols, right, are, that are doing uh, structured products are giving you a, like, I would say, professional grade instruments that you probably couldn't get in traditional finance as a normal investor versus like a, you know, a, a private banking client or in an institution. And so um, there's some really interesting stuff going on at that level. But then there's a whole level of right uh, around, um, you know, how are you taking existing innovations and technologies and making applicable to things that touch what people can relate to. So how are you making this relevant for somebody who may not have had access to capital the same way? How do you make this relevant to, as you mentioned, someone who wants to save money, sending money cross border? How do you make this relevant to somebody who uh, wants a, a creator, right? Who wants a way to be able to manage their business without having to pay platform fees, right? To, 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 um, you know, some some monolithic uh, platform in that sense. So I think the responsibility and the real utility piece are super important to convince people that like, hey, we're, we're, we're there are a lot of jokes in crypto and everything, but like we're a serious industry. We want to create real value. Now, how to do this, I think, is also really important. Right. And so um, I, I think there's yeah, multiple levels to this. Right. I think if there's you as an individual in your personal life. There's you as a I guess, representation of your company and then you as a representation of the industry to people outside of it. And so um, and, and from a personal perspective, right, um, and this actually is as simple as like making sure you have the patience to explain crypto in basic terms to your friends at the dinner table, like and, and not just be like, hey, they're not going to understand it. I'm not going to take time to explain like you do have to go down to the basics a little bit more, but I think it is incredibly important because sometimes the first time someone is hearing that perspective about the industry is coming from you. And so there's, there's this responsibility that you can actually think about um, in, in advocating, right. For, for, uh, the things that are being done right. Um, from a company level, this is really around how you kind of interact with your peers and hopefully work together to set high standards for like what is good product building, things like that. Um, and then the, the highest level is really like 
I mean, it comes down to engaging with people outside of the industry. Um, how do you talk to in a position of power, right? Like this would be any conversation that you run into with somebody from traditional finance, from the policy side, from the big tech side as well. How are you representing the industry when, when you're talking to them? So um, I hope that answers the question around how can we, you know, get like from the place that we're at to hopefully where we aspire to be in the future. No, I think it does a lot, right? I mean, I think one thing, I mean, just to, I think you mentioned and touched some really sensitive points where I feel it's really important to highlight, right? The fact that we always believe that these institutions, these CFI players are people you can trust because they're regulated, they've gone through licensing, they are managed by licensed individuals. And in fact, in this whole contagion, the DeFi protocols are the ones that won out. And that message never comes across, right? It's the whole crypto market. No, there's a big difference between CFI and DeFi. And I think there is a bad understanding of what the difference is, right? You gave your money to an institution that actually mm -hmm. played and gambled it away irresponsibly yeah. and not according to what you were asking them to do based on you giving them the money to manage for you, right? That, I think, was number one, a misunderstanding. Number two, your keys, your coins, that one out, right? And I think mm -hmm. everybody that aped in were aping in for FOMO. Oh, my buddy said, go and do this, right? And it wasn't necessarily an education perspective. I don't go to Sherry, who works in this industry, and I want to learn from her what I should do. What are the first steps for me to go in versus just aping in with somebody else and going down that path, yeah, right? Yeah. Because I think you build in this industry, you have an understanding, you qualify very quickly. And I think that's how, how do we scale that more, right? How, how does that scale? I still see we have a challenge in that, but I think that's how you and everybody in our peer group can find. I don't know, I've some of the people that, you know, I had personal trainers that I paid in crypto. That's how they got into crypto. I had my buddies from who were doing flower trading and stuff, you know, sort of real world. Yeah. They were creating fake teeth. All of a sudden, they're now NFT aficionados. They're yeah. in full in DeFi, managing their wallets across different chains, bridging across. And that over the course of a year, right? So very quickly, if you can learn about it and you take the time to understand it, you will make mistakes, you will get hurt. Um, but I think you can really make some good progress. Mm -hmm. One thing that also surprised me, and I'd be interested to hear about you, is that in crypto land, I find that when we had a loss, we take the loss. And no matter how painful it is and how sad we become, a lot of the people pick up and move forward, right? You were Korea Blockchain Week, just there, the home and heartland of Terra Luna that just crashed in two days. This company lost $50 billion in value and everybody there was still positive. We got to make it back yeah. again. We're going to build again, right? And so without any government backing, it crashed, cleared it out, and we move forward, right? I mean, is that, was that your, how was Korea Blockchain Week for you and, and your experience? Yeah, um, honestly, it was super exciting. I mean, I think I, a lot of the points that you talked about really resonate. It's like the people who are left that are still excited to share ideas, get to know each other, um, are really dedicated to the space because 
it's not that easy to just make money right now if that was your most sole motivation in crypto versus the height of the bull market right like last year and so you've got really genuine builders creators contributors that are coming together and still like look i know we've been through some battle scars but we are gonna be here to help each other out and i think that's so 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 refreshing i think the other part i loved about korea blockchain week was the fact that there was so much um highlighting of the korea ecosystem and crypto which i think sometimes from an outside perspective you you don't hear about as many of these projects so i think that was really cool to be able to see like wow like there is this like you know global level i would say with with crypto and everything but even within these markets there's these homegrown kind of ecosystems and just being able to see that on display i think was really cool so um yeah i certainly feel like the community has gone through a lot but the people who are left are super dedicated and you know I, i think there's you know a a lot of um support that we can you know provide each other as we move forward and you know hopefully see the next stage of growth um for the entire industry and you know one thing i'm going to flip-flop a little bit and come back to sort of the the, the regulatory and framework and stable coins right i mean you know (laughs) you're working on a stable coin we're working on a stable coin and and we're collaborating together. And I think that's the interesting thing on a decentralized basis. But more importantly, if we look at what's taking place in the stablecoin world, right, there's a lot of understanding that, you know, you look at Bitcoin, it's come on cryptocurrencies in itself. In the last 12 years or 15 years, not quite 15 years, maybe 12 years, it's come to a point where Jerome Powell, you know, the Fed Reserve goes on stage and says, we have to actually, cryptocurrencies are influencing our agenda and policymaking, right? So all of a sudden, it's sort of at the table, it's being influencing them. What does that mean? And as a threat to a monopoly that has been printing money, managing the supply of money, um, and the distribution and the flow and managing the economy yeah. based on that. How do stable coins that's beginning to influence their policy making? How yeah. do you see that you know trickling down into the markets and and and, and with your user base, right? Yeah. Wow. Um, there's a there's so many points to this question. Um, so no, no, no. Of course, I, I can go on and on about this. Yeah. But you know, um, I think sometimes I'll just make this point and I'll just move on maybe to the next. But um, you know, sometimes we we like think that like the Fed has really been around forever and the way that our monetary ecosystem is just the way sure. it's supposed to be. But um, the Fed's not more than I think 200 years old, right? And yeah. it was actually invented out of a need to basically manage credit, uh, manage banking at a much more holistic level than all the different separate banks in the U.S. were able to do, right? And so th- it was kind of in- created out of that need at the time. But I think the way that our world is evolving in terms of money money is, 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 is actually I would say uh, somewhat of an existential threat to some central banks. It's, it's absolutely true. I'm not going to, you know, dance around it. Like at, yeah. right now where it currently stands, maybe not. Right. Because we're still, you know, less than um, 200 billion in, in, in total supply. But once we get to one T one trillion, like what does that look like? So, so absolutely there, there's a bit of that. Now, how do we actually move to that or I guess get to that, path right and and what do we do about it now um i'm I'm just gonna 
maybe give a reference to like what happened to the internet maybe in the earlier days and how yeah. there was actually a lot, a lot of, um, I would say regulatory concerns, um, as well as like lack of regulatory standards around the internet as well. And, um, you know, ultimately we live in a world today where we've had several iterations of those conversations with regulators and policymakers, right, to to get to, to, to what we have today. And so I think there is going to be an inevitable back and forth conversation that will have to, ha have to happen at that level. And I do believe that over time, um, you're not going to be able to retain as much of that centralized power over money when you have all these different alternatives that are coming up, right? Yeah. Um, I think that same thing happened to information, right? Government doesn't have ultimate control over information uh, of, of the internet, et cetera. It, it's this thing that's kind of running, depending on, you know, what country you're in, obviously. But, in. Um, right, and um, it's a tide that I just don't think like, I think there'll be resistance. I think there will be efforts to control it, to stop it maybe in some places. But I, I do think that um, if you think about history, right, it's, it's this like up, down, up, down. But ultimately, the trend is is one direction. And, and, and I just think that the the monetary system, our money system, needs to be able to adopt to the fabric of what the world is today, right? And it simply just doesn't, I would say, work anymore for the, the level of uh, innovation and things are actually happening. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things I've always advocated is the right to choose, right? I mean, you know, yeah. certain parts of the population should have the right to choose um, what coin and what money they like to use, right? And we already do that if you think about it, right? We can choose whether I want US dollar, I want GBP, or I want, mm -hmm. you know, renminbi or whatever the currency is that I want to have, I can choose and I can float between that. Why shouldn't there be, you know, in the sense of um, network nations, why shouldn't there be coins between these networks that they appreciate that, right? And over time, you think about it. I mean, I looked at, you know, you look at currencies like the Swiss franc, right? In Switzerland, there's a population of 6 million people. You know, the Singapore dollar, what's the population of the in Singapore, right? They support an economy that size. So you don't need to be 100 million or 5 billion people in order to support economy. You need that network that of people that trust in that coin. And I think yes. yeah. giving... And the advantage with decentralization is this network is not managed by one jurisdiction. It's managed by maintenance of these servers in multiple jurisdictions simultaneously. And if you have a larger portion across these different jurisdictions, it's really hard to um, contain. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and ultimately, um, if there is a user need and people are finding value out of it, it's very hard to stop people, right? And yeah. I think with money, um, there's there's two main things that need to be there. I think number one is social consensus, right? Is there enough uh, people that are accepting this currency, this coin? Is there enough ecosystem of, uh, you know, places you can pay at different merchants, etc.? Um, and then secondly, is there faith in the system, right? And faith, yeah. I think, in the traditional sense, has been in the government bodies, right, that are creating these currencies, but there could be new articles of faith that are established that don't rely on that central body. As you said, it's relying on the the, the principles of, um, you know, maybe the, 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 the protocol or, you know, the, the entity that is, is behind it. So um, I, I think these paradigms 
can shift. Now, of course, it, it's very kind of high level academic, I guess, the way that we're thinking about it right now. But um, I, I do think that in the next uh, few decades, um, paradigms around money will will change. Um, change right? It will change. And they already, yeah, they already are changing. Um, and, yeah. and, and that level is going to go beyond, right, using or viewing crypto as an investment vehicle, but actually thinking about it as a store of, oh, sorry, as a unit of account or um, as a medium exchange for, for, for use cases. Yeah, I mean, I think, think that's one thing that I see and, and interesting to hear your views as well is that there is a a sense of I don't want to say maybe trust or or mistrust is maybe that's the right word in these institutions that are especially over the last sort of four to five years there's been a really big growing sense of distrust in in what is being shared with us, right? In terms of inflation metrics, in terms of money printing, mm -hmm. in terms of shutting economies down, in terms of the wealthier getting wealthier and and the poorer staying poorer, right? And so, it's 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 it, it, that mistrust is growing, and so out of that, you know, there may you know people are looking for alternatives and different choices, and what are those different choices, and and where are they going to come from? Um, and I think, you know, we as humans are very creative in times of need, right? And I think yeah. we, um, and so in times of need, people will become very creative, hopefully not violently, but hopefully in yeah. ways of being able to settle my requirements, paying rent, having a roof, having food on the table, etc. right? Yeah, yeah. And, and look, I, I think that's the beauty of Web3 is that all of a sudden you're given the tools to create a community that actually caters, you know, for the people, by the people, of the people, right? And and, and in a sense, institutions um, were the centralized authority where you kind of put your trust in them that they serve your needs. But obviously, that that has not necessarily felt like the case. Um, it, many examples around the world where you know you're paying your taxes, but then you're not really getting the social network, uh, social safety net, um, you know that that you're looking for, um, even though you're you're contributing that. And so I think what's beautiful about Web three is that um, you don't have to sit around waiting for somebody to come in to solve your problems, right? You can actually go out and create that community um, and, and define and actually create your own destiny in a sense, right? Um, you don't like the way that, um, I don't know, just going to give you an example, but if, if you don't like the way that capital has been distributed in a traditional sense, create a group of people who are vested or, you know, very um, much committed to maybe a specific sector, be it healthcare, be it whatever, and then bring people together and invest in those spaces, right? And so that, that I think is completely enabled so that you actually have maybe smaller communities of people who are who know the problem, who are highly dedicated to the problem and have the resources to contribute, come together versus having to rely on, again, monolithic institutions to solve it. So um, I, I do think that this is you know, part of the reason why I, at least at an ethos level, love the Web3 space. Um, it's just so much more of a you know, bi-directional, multi-directional interaction between different parties to create something versus, you know, having a monolithic top-down or one-directional um, sort of relationship with a custodian or a centralized figure to solve solve your problems. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't I couldn't agree with you more. I think one of the 
or a couple of, of things that, 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 that are really important there are um, community, right? I think, as you mentioned it, right? I think the moat that these cryptocurrencies have is their community, right? They're only as good as the community is. And the community gives it value and rates the value of a board ape of a you know uh you know a crypto punk of a whatever it is right i'm creating that value because we as a community appreciate that value and we want to be recognized for that right and so i think that you see that in the nft in the cryptocurrency space and one person i remember i can't remember who it was but on we were talking about you know the traditional finance world they forgot that People don't want a relationship with their bank. They want a relationship with their money, right? And so what have we done in Cryptoland is we're allowing that relationship to happen with money by allowing it to flow and be exchanged amongst that community easily and fluidly. Um, but in, in order to get the community there, I think you provide and you have been looking at this from a very interesting perspective, the onboarding right it's really hard to get people to come on and into crypto how do i get my paper fiat into a digital payment mechanism on a mobile phone so then i can start sharing it around via the mobile phone right and how do we do that same activity into crypto land how do i take my digital money that's on my mobile phone into a, 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 a cryptocurrency or a stable coin that I can then use and start sharing around the world mm -hmm. as a currency, right? I mean, how do you see that challenge and, and, and how are you trying yeah. to address that, right? Yeah, um, so I, I think there's two things, right? I'll, I'll talk about the um, maybe the value uh, trigger that needs to be there and then I'll talk about like the functional barriers that need to be solved. Yeah. Um, number one is around value, right? Like yeah. the thing is, Ultimately, money is valuable because of what it does for you. But like, do we actually care about money itself? No, I care about paying my rent every month. Yeah. I care that my cat is fed, right? I care that, you know, I'm able to save to go on that trip that I planned with my family. That's what money does. It's, it's opportunity. It's creating that opportunity. It's helping you have shared experiences with others. So I, I think... Um, if you make that process easier for people, whether it's, you know, uh, making payments cheaper, making it faster, making access to capital better, that's what people care about. So I think you have to, um, I think for most people, you have to convey those values. And at the end of the day, they might not necessarily care, right? If it's Bitcoin or Ether or it's this or that, it's, it's really about what that money actually brings to you in unlocking those opportunities and, and communicating it that way. Um, I, I think on the functional barrier side, we still have a lot to do uh, to make the app experience as well as the infrastructural experience just simply work better, right? Um, and, and on the app side of things, I think um, there is a lot I think we can actually learn from Web2. Um, you know, I do come from that background, and so I'm definitely more like, let's not necessarily co-opt and schemorphically bring everything from Web2 into Web3, but there's certain principles around how is it best how do you best create a first 
touch experience with the user? How is it? How do you have good um, signposting throughout your application so that people know um, what this button does? Like, I think those basic principles just need to be embedded more in in DeFi and applications right now. Um, I think some some uh, projects do do a good job of this, um, and some of them, um, you know, have designers that are founders that used to be designers, and you can really tell actually in the way that it's created. But I think there needs to be a bit of a shift in mindset from just pure uh, product and tech focused uh, and into a little bit more user focus as well on that layer. Now, yeah. on the infrastructural side, it's still not perfect, right? Um, and so it's it's still quite siloed in a couple of different buckets. I would say that, um, you know, we still have many different chains out there, different layers. Bridging is still in a little bit of its nascency when it comes to security and all of that. And so mm-hmm. as long as a lot of these parts aren't talking to each other yet, um, there's going to be some challenges when it comes to actually uh, creating an experience that's not so fragmented for for the end user. Um, And then uh, similarly, uh, I do believe, at least in the short term, that we need fiat on and off ramps, right, for certain use cases. Like, um, I I equate this to the days where, um, you know, credit card adoption among merchants wasn't 100%. So you had to still go to an ATM machine to get cash. That was the off ramp of the last decade, right? We still need that until like every single street merchant, and and, and you see it in Singapore now after the pandemic, like now they don't like accept, like nobody only accepts cash anymore, right? And so I can actually walk around with my mobile phone, not have cash and I'll be totally fine 99.9% of the time. But we're not there yet. And so I think building that bridge between the fiat world and the crypto world for some of these use cases is still paramount. But that process is still, very fragmented, not super transparent. Um, and so I think that's that's a layer that also needs to be improved. So uh, functionally, there's still things that are um, that still need some patching. But what gives me hope is I'm actually meeting a lot of new startups that are actually trying to solve some of these orchestration challenges, these you know, cross-chain bridging, multi-chain management uh, problems, and then also the fiat on and off ramp. So um, it's being noticed, it's being built, um, just take some time before these really come to uh, any kind of maturation. Yeah, and I think, you know, and, and you've been playing, you know, sort of, with Blue Jay, right? I mean, you're, you're building a lot of efforts and, and you mentioned it earlier in your conversation, right? That you're trying to build securitized stable coins, right? So you're building a financial mechanism that actually is collateralized in the back end yes. and has um, the reserves needed when the demand for liquidity is there. You do have the necessary um, support for that. And you've come up with a, an interesting model around bonding mechanisms, you call them, right, in, yeah. in your white paper. And and sort of, do you want to explain a bit how, how you work that and, and, and how yeah. that helps with the growth of the stablecoin and, and how that works? Yeah. Yeah. So let me actually take a step back and explain, like, why we decided to pick the bonding mechanism. And, yeah. um, you know, uh, I'll, I'll use a reference of like actually startup equity raising, right? So normally yeah. when you ra- raise funds, early stage, higher risk, um, you do a couple distinct uh, rounds, right? You have a seed, series A, B, C, D, and then, you know, you, you kind of at that each point of those milestones, then you look back, okay, what's been the, the, the revenue? How's the growth been? Things like that and determine evaluation and the funding needs. Um Bonding mechanism in our model is basically a continuous fundraising mechanism that gets dynamically tuned as we see the deployment efficiency and 
uh, I guess, productive deployment of the capital itself. So imagine like um, now fundraising is just this continuous stream versus having these distinct different stages. And so yeah. we believe that this is a more efficient uh, kind of, uh, you know, way of being able to bring money in um, that can only be possible, right, within DeFi that you can't really do in the, the real world, right? Um, I mean, I'm just imagining like that that would never happen with, with, with traditional investors. So so that's what bonding, uh, that's the principle of bonding. Now, how it works in practicality with BlueJay is we have um, these discounted blue tokens or governance tokens that we're selling as bonds. Um, and what you will do as a liquidity provider into the protocol is take your USD stable coins like DAI and then purchase these bonds. Um, these bonds are going to be priced depending on the market as well as the supply of that specific asset that we need. And so, yeah. um, you know, the different types of bonds we have are number one, um, the stable coin bonds like DAI bonds, but also the LP token bonds. So we uh, have like blue DAI and then DAI blue SGD, which is our stable coin, which allows us to bring the liquidity from the decks actually into our protocol and actually own that piece. So that's where the, the protocol own value, protocol and liquidity parts comes into play. Now, um, the discounts between these individual bonds are tuned depending on the demand we have for that particular collateral. So if we come to a point where we, we don't want any more die, right? Let's say we, we want Euro stable coins now. We yeah. want to be able to, um, you know, hedge our own FX risk. We can have a, a Euro C, let's just take circle, for example, to have yeah. a Euro C bond where, and, and it's discounted twice as much as the the die one. And now we're incentivizing more people to bring in the, the Euro. So, so that's, um, now, so there's that continuous fundraising on the the, the I would say the the, the um, matching the funds flow to the fund uh, deployment perspective. But if you notice, there's actually this uh, diversification element that we'll have as we grow of different collateral that we ultimately want to bring in. Yeah, no, I think that's that's super interesting, right? And and the advantage with modern systems is I don't need to wait six months or a year or two years for my next fundraising round and then go yes. and have a huge, right? How can I do that on a, on a, a continuous basis? So I think that's yes. um, interesting. And, and, can, and the thing is like, you don't need this like fancy data room that you put together at every six months that you're raising. That's all on chain. Like you can see our entire balance sheet on chain and whatever is not on chain, we will publish that, right? Like we'll be very yeah. transparent about it. You can see our revenues. You can see where the revenues are coming from, which pools, what the trading activity is. So like what you don't even need that data room every six months or that specific distinct period. You can see that at any given point and then you as a you know a retail investor or you know someone else can just say at this point in time i think that this is a good buy all right and, yeah. and you can do it at any time you want and it's a good investment right i can put my money in there and, and i know i'm going to get a certain yield return revenue associated with that right exactly exactly yeah, yeah no i think you know a lot of those are interesting and i think one of the things that you know in the model that you know crypto has developed you know and it sort of came up pretty early on right i mean the dao right the decentralized autonomous organization is this new means to manage an operation and it's i think it's become very clear that you know it takes time to build a dao and build a decentralized organization right you need certain feature foragers or innovators or entrepreneurs to create the path 
as and set the tone in terms of how the decentralization happens. And it takes maybe a journey of five years or four years. I mean, look at MakerDAO and the journey that that's gone through, right? It's dissolved its whole incorporation and mm-hmm. the, the foundation itself has been dissolved, right? And you look at, you know, Shapeshift and what Eric Voorhees is a decentralized foundation to then a centralized regulated entity to then going back to full cent- decentralized DAO. At the same time, we're seeing certain flaws in the DAO or mm-hmm. changes in the DAO process that some of the true cold-hearted, you know, um, crypto OGs don't really like, right? Because it's like traditional people coming in and influencing the direction of a DAO, but that's what a DAO was set up to do. Um, and then you have sort of new models where the decision-making isn't fast enough in order to meet some of the innovation requirements and the liquidity requirements when you have a liquidation run, as we saw in other examples in the last couple of months, right? How do you think the DAO is going to evolve and where do you think the DAO is headed? I mean, yeah, in terms of the community, in terms of the network, et cetera. Yeah. Um, no, I think that's a that's absolutely a great question. And and yeah. what I love about crypto is you can actually flex different types of thinking. And this is actually just reminding me of some of the days that I had when I was taking political science classes, because I really think DAOs is less about maybe the financial aspect specifically, but around like, what is the optimal way for this particular problem to coordinate a bunch of disparate actors to arrive mm-hmm. at a conclusion, right? That That's what it ultimately is, right? Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, uh, we're again in a new age where like there the idea of a LLC corporation and some of these traditional structures um, may be outdated. And there's a way yeah. to organize people around a new set of parameters and rules. And so, um, you know, a couple of perspectives I have about DAOs, I think number one is that I do believe that they're going to increase um, and yeah. they're going to be different types of DAOs as well. So they're not referred to as one monolithic term. Um, you have DAOs that are as like casual and fun as a social group of people that like maybe believe uh or really enjoy like going out i'm not even joking there's a one called hot pot dao right people who who around the world who enjoy eating hot pot and want to meet up with people that they can trust in this dao to hang out now it's a much more casual kind of organization um but then you also have like DAOs that are being run like companies right where there's um you know structural things that need to be considered so so i do think that there'll be an emergence of uh, DAOs and still continue to grow but uh, you almost have to tag different categories to DAOs to think about how you can answer like is a DAO a good thing and what kind of rules you should have it's super context dependent in my mind um I think the second thing is um, there's no set way to, I would say, run a DAO, right? Um, There's some people that may believe in like the most kind of direct democracy as possible. So it's like, you know, everybody has one, uh, I mean, like, if you have a token, it's just one vote. It's not like, you know, one token, one vote where like a big whale could vote on everything. Um, or like, you know, you go through like a slightly more centralized model, which is what you see through like index and some of these other projects where you have um, like a more delegate uh, representative democracy being uh, being repre- uh, being being picked. Right. And, and I think that flexing across the spectrum is OK, because it really depends on the complexity of the problem that you're solving, because 
to be honest, in some cases, you probably do want a working group or like people who can specialize in a certain area to make decisions. And then the rest of the DAO can be informed maybe on an FYI basis, depending on what it is, right? But I think what is most important, regardless of the route that you pick with the DAO, is you set the rules up front in a constitution so that the people who are going into your community know what they're signing up for, right? Yeah. So if somebody doesn't like the way your DAO is structured, wants something that is more decentralized, they could choose not to buy your token and not to be in your community, right? Yeah. But yeah. if they see up front, this is how things are done, then they're like, oh, okay, that's good. Then like, that that should be fine, right? And so I think it's all about like, set the rules that you think work for your particular DAO, um, and then make sure that's communicated to the community and have them self-elect whether or not they want to be part of it, right? So I, I think that that part's important. Um, I didn't, I guess, answer how we think about DAOs at BlueJay um, or think about that for ourselves as well. Um, so we certainly um, want to have a bi-directional relationship with our community uh, within BlueJay. And, and this includes like anyone from, you know, the crypto enthusiast in the Philippines who really wants to see a peso stablecoin, um, all the way to people who are actually our formalized partners, right? We consider yeah. strategic partners also in our ecosystem or, you know, part of our community. And so um, we definitely are, uh, you know, we, we want to prioritize this, this, this bi-directional um, relationship because for us to survive as a stable coin, we need the habitat and the ecosystem to be there. So how we can't launch in Malaysia if we don't have the support of Malaysian users, if we don't have Malaysian uh, or Malaysia market-focused protocols that want to use the stablecoin. So, so once we get to a stage where we see there's a lot of support, a lot of enthusiasm, then as a DAO, we can decide we want to launch in that market. It's it's not so much like you know us sitting in you know Singapore and deciding like you know everything about our our, our country expansion. Um, now, uh, how? Uh, how do we do this on like a functional level? That's actually still something that, um, you know, we're working through. Um, but I think on a principle level, uh, we definitely want to embody the community based approach when it comes to inputting into some of the expansion decision making that we have. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, that's the right angle. I think you've got a very good perspective on that, right? I really like that idea that, you know, in the end, it's, it's, it's inclusion, it's having the community, it's bi-directional, and, and it's setting the tone up front. It's really, what is a DAO? How does it work? And I think one of the things in Asia that, that as you were speaking, that came to my mind was that the, the concept of debentures, Right? You have different debentures to join a community, to be a part of a membership, to be a part of a club. And, and those clubs can be you know, investment clubs that make big yes. investment decisions, that can be clubs that manage a treasury, right? that can be clubs that, that have all these different representations. And maybe that's you know, a learning to take from that. And that's why sort of the relationship between the DAO and a debenture maybe is a bit closer than, than, yeah. than the we thought in the past or something we can relate to. Yeah, absolutely. And, and actually, you just reminded me of a point, which is, uh, you know, a DAO is just a tool, right? Yeah. It's not fundamentally exactly. good or bad <laughs> itself, right? But yeah, what's yeah. important is what is the community and what is the mandate or the mission of that community? And how do you shape the DAO? to actually contribute to that. You can have no. communities without DAOs. You can have, I mean, you should not, definitely not have a DAO 
without a community. And so that's why it's really important to understand like who are the people there and is the DAO actually serving the community correctly? Because that that's what ultimately matters, right? If there are people who are outside the DAO that don't like the way the DAO's being run but have but the DAO's community participants are happy, um, then I mean you're you're kind of doing at least the first leg of your job. But I think that community aspect is is what matters I think the most as of as a first and foremost point. No, super exciting. Um, really great to talk to you, Sherry. Um, you know, I, I, great perspectives. Um, really exciting um, and energetic, which is awesome. Passionate about what you're doing. Um, where can people follow follow you, and, and and what are sort of some of your social media accounts that they can check out? Obviously, check out Blue Jay Finance. Um, but yeah, more about where can they follow you and, and see and learn about your thinkings and musings. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think the best place is probably Twitter. Um, so you can yeah. follow me. I'm uh, at Sherry Yan Jang. Um, or uh, also follow Blue Jay Finance at Blue Jay Finance. Um, and uh, actually, uh, for those who are interested in some of like these perspectives that we talked about, um, I actually am a co-author of a new blog that um, launched over the summer called The Long Thesis. So it actually goes into some of these concepts around like what is the existing payment infrastructure? How does crypto potentially solve for those? Um, how do we think about new monetary policies uh, compared to what has developed over the last, you know, two centuries in terms of like central banks. So if you enjoy those things, I also have a blog. Um, it's not related to Blue Jay directly, but just like my own personal musings that I find interesting um, that kind of connect multiple disciplinary, uh, I guess, schools of thought, all kind of you know converging on crypto as, as a kind of centralized um, discussion topic. So before I say farewell is I'm going to ask one <laughs> question, which I usually ask everybody, but I hadn't asked you yet, but is, Given all your musings and all your experience, <laughs> I, I generally ask you, what, what is a book that really stood out for you or the last book that you were reading or the movie that you went to that really stood out? What book is, that really impressed you and, and, or, you read, you're, or you're reading right now maybe? Yeah. Um, wow. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot that I can talk about. But um, one of my favorite books that I've read recently is this one by David Epstein called uh, Range. Um, and so uh, it actually compares uh, guys like Tiger Woods to Roger Federer, Tiger obviously being a really great golf player and Federer being a tennis player, right? Tennis. And how like we kind of grow up in this world where like you should specialize, like, you know, learn your specific craft and that's it. And that's the Tiger Woods approach. But then the Federer, like he actually, um, I think his mother was a tennis player, but he actually like did a whole bunch of sports before he landed on tennis. Right. And sure. so it actually goes into this idea that in this world where it's highly complex, situations, highly volatile, you need to actually be more adaptable than just purely specialized and have like a range of thinking. And so um, it, it's, it's, and how like different disciplines actually uh, have crossover lessons to 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 another. Um, how yeah, so so I think uh, that's one of my favorite books. And how it kind of applies to the way I think about my life is um, you should always kind of look at how you can take learnings from things that don't seemingly relate to each other. And so um, that's. Uh, 
something that I think, um, you know, I, I think about when it comes to the blog as well. Like, how do you think about concepts in crypto when you're pulling in analogies around how governments have been run? Right. Um, and so that that to me is something that, um, you know, I care about. Uh, I, obviously, at a personal level, I want to cultivate multiple interests as well. But there's also this, uh, you know, uh, angle of how it actually might benefit um, what I'm doing uh, in my core work because there's different lessons I can I can draw um, across different spaces. No, I'm going to read that book. I'm intrigued now. <laughs> it's a, it's um, a no. pretty it's a uh, I was just gonna say it's a it's a pretty uh, a pretty like uh, you know Sunday with the coffee kind of read. So um, certainly uh, hope uh, let me know what you think <laughs> if you get to it. So I have to be, uh, I have to confess that I don't really read books anymore. I just listen to books. I just sort of somehow have gone off yeah. books. It's all audio books now for me because I or don't know. commutes, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I hear you. I hear you. It's nice to sometimes <laughs> uh, hear the narration. Um, I, yeah. I, I've been stuck in San Francisco traffic before when I lived in the States. I mean, I was, I was all into podcasts at that time as well. Yeah. No, Sherry Jung, Blue Finance, uh, Blue Jay Finance. Uh, follow them on Twitter, and there's a link to. We'll put a link to your blog post in the in the YouTube channel below. And thank you very much. Super exciting. Um, and there are so many opportunities in this space, and so many entrepreneurs needing talented individuals to join them and help them on this journey. It's not a one-man show it's a community so if the community is interested reach out to sherry and find out what blue jay's up to and if there's opportunities it's a super exciting time and it's the best time to be alive today thank you very much thanks for your time and your insights thank you stefan this was super fun This was Stefan Roost and Sherry Jiang. You can follow Sherry on Twitter at Sherry Yan Jiang. That's S-H-E-R-R-Y-Y-A-N-J-I-A-N-G. And Blue Jay Finance at Blue Jay Finance. That's B-L-U-E-J-A-Y-F-I-N-A-N-C-E. You can also follow Stefan on Twitter at sroost99. That's S-R-U-S-T-9. And you can find the Super Excited with Stefan Roost podcast on all major podcast platforms and on YouTube on the Stefan Roost channel. Thank you for listening.